This is an AMI podcast. Our voices, our stories, our community. Listen to AMI audio podcasts highlighting news, stories, and information relevant to people with disabilities across Canada. Learn more at ami.ca slash audio. Reopening a cold case in Nova Scotia is no simple matter. Reopening a case that's been closed is another story entirely. In the rare occasion this does happen, it tends to be the result of one of the following. One, undeniable new evidence. This could be provided, for example, by a previously unattainable witness. Two, a government directive, either provincial or federal. And three, perhaps the most likely, public pressure. But Peter and I were about to learn from Tom Martin, there is another way to get a case long closed, reopened. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is what happened to Holly Bartlett. Holly Bartlett was found unconscious under the McKay Bridge after a night out with her friends. The initial police investigation was wrapped up really quickly. Drunk, blind girl, case closed. The 31-year-old's death in March 2010 was ruled an accident. There's a lot of hours in there that we don't know where she was. There's parts of me that sort of died with my sister. I really would like to know what happened to Holly. Somebody knows. Episode 5, New Evidence. Peter, Tom, and I are meeting in the research office to re-examine the clothing Holly was wearing when she was found that morning in critical condition. Police returned the items to Marion many years ago, and they've sat in a bag ever since. It wasn't until we climbed the abutment ourselves and Tom noticed an exposed area showing the loose concrete dust from the previous layer that he realized we may be able to support or contradict one part of the police theory, the presumption that Holly had crawled up the abutment. Hey, Peter. Hey, great to see you again, Tom. Good to see you, Yeah, sir. I have Holly's clothes there. Yeah, I'm going to look at them now, take a, a few stills. Tom instructs us to lay out white paper on top of the table surface. He gives each of us a pair of latex gloves and puts on a pair himself. Peter is holding the items from Marion, his friend's clothing, in a large, transparent plastic bag. Inside it are blue jeans, a pair of black boots, and Holly's red pea coat. As far as court's concerned, any continuity with this stuff is gone. We first learned this from Neil Fraser, the retired cop and private investigator, who explained to us why we'd never be able to formally gather any evidence from Holly's cane. But what Tom is looking for is different. He's not just looking for evidence that would hold up in court. He's trying to figure out what most likely happened. All I know is none of this stuff was washed, and that's important to me. So there's two areas we'd be looking uh, for right. material. One would be on the knees of her pants, and the other would be the toes of her shoes. Tom pulls two smaller bags out of the large one, each containing one of Holly's black boots. They're nearly knee height with a wedge heel less than an inch high. Tom is looking for marks on the toes that might indicate Holly had climbed up the abutment. Slight, but possible. Okay. I want to look at the shoes first. So these are packaged separately, so I'll look at them separately. Okay, the first thing I notice, you can see a series, there is a pattern of scrapes, for lack of a better word. Tom is taking pictures because he says the lens can capture what our eyes can't. 
And this could come in handy later when he reviews the photos. This all looks fairly old to me. If Holly would have gone up that ramp on her hands and knees, the toes would be I would expect to see those toes torn to hell. But they aren't. There are a few marks on Holly's boots, but they're faded, barely visible, as if they were already there, just regular wear and tear. It's almost not as much what you see on them, but what you don't see when you're talking about the toes in particular. Yeah. See if the other one holds the same. Tom pulls Holly's other boot out of its bag. Now that looks fresher. See how it's a lighter color? It's going in the other direction. Yeah. We had that shoe with the barks running vertical, and we have this shoe with the barks running horizontal. The thing that sticks out about that side of her shoe, there's not much there. So what you would expect to see given the journey that she is, you know, purported to have gone on that night, that this is not adding up at first glance? No. Tom takes a few more pictures of the second boot. He believes if Holly had climbed up the abutment on her hands and knees, as the police suggested, there should be concrete dust where the knees of her jeans contacted the ramp. So we're looking at her pants. Okay, so it's a tear, another tear, same direction. The faded blue jeans are laid out facing down on the table. There's a one inch rip in the pants, just about where the top of Holly's thigh would be in the middle of the fabric. It lines up directly with the pocket point above it. The tear is horizontal. The second rip, much smaller, is only about the size of a dime and higher up, in between the back pockets, just left of the middle seam. That is mm. significant in my mind. Tom lifts the jeans and places his gloved fingers through the lower hole and easily pokes them through. There's a clean tear in the denim. Call me crazy, but you'd think it would go the other way, like vertically. That's assuming it came from the fence. Right, well that's, yes, I mean. That could be a rock, that could be yeah. glass, it could be anything. And if you look at her buttocks area, and we have what I assume looks like dirt radiate between both sides of her buttocks. There's a round stain of what looks like earth on the seat of the pants, almost like the dirt you'd find after sitting down on a dusty hill at an outdoor concert. Tom carefully lifts the jeans and turns them over, facing up. So, Tom, does it leap out at you that there's no blood? No. This wasn't a scene where there was a whole lot of bloodletting. Yeah. Peter, as far as we recognize and we respect the fact that Holly was a friend, mm -hmm. and how I look at this, mm -hmm. this is Holly helping us. Mm -hmm, definitely. She's doing whatever she can to help us, mm -hmm. and we just got to read it. And some of it, you know, it's 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 hard and it's it's difficult. We just mm. got to see it, right? I'm I'm with you. Seen a lot more. I find on the front of her jeans. The there does seem to be more activity on the front. This would be slightly below the knee. Yeah. Tom points to a tear on the left leg of the jeans, but as he says, it's below where her knee would be. There's a fine layer of brown on the upper half of the jeans that looks like dirt. So I'm standing on the front here. And what about the concrete dust you spoke of when we're Concrete dust, and I would guess that would be around the knee somewhere. This would be in the area of her knee, in this area here. Mm. Strangely, the circle Tom is drawing in the air above the knee of the jeans is clean. There's barely any dirt there, and there's no sign of a whitish, pale gray substance. There's nothing visible here. Mm -hmm. It should be noted, there was no evidence of sexual assault when Dr. Wood conducted Holly's autopsy, and she was fully clothed when she was found.
When I first met Tom, he told me something that stuck with me. He said the best investigators aren't defined by ingenuity or soaring intelligence. Instead, he says the best cops just know how to employ common sense, connect the dots. Common sense tells us that if Holly had climbed up the abutment that night, there would be signs of it. Concrete dust on the knees of her jeans where they were bare, scrapes on the toes of her boots where there were none. We pack up Holly's clothing and take off our gloves. We also have Holly's backpack, a slim black faux leather bag that's like a purse you can wear so you can have your hands free, which makes sense when you think about Holly traveling freely with her cane. I asked Tom if it would be okay to look through the tiny backpack without gloves on, given that it's already been handled by so many people. He nods in my direction and I open the bag. Inside are the items listed in police reports, her CNIB card, the lip gloss, loose change. I reach down into the bottom of the front pocket and find a pair of earrings, two little hoops, resting in between the folds of stitching and fabric. You see these? I ask Tom. He clicks his tongue against his teeth, shaking his head. What? I ask him. He's quiet for a second, then says, earrings weren't listed in the police record of the contents of the bag. I feel stupid and guilty for taking the gloves off. The earrings probably haven't even been touched since Holly placed them there. But I keep going. I reach my hand again into the front pocket of the backpack and feel something papery. I pull it out. It's a receipt. The print is nearly worn off, illegible now. I unfurl it and find a piece of gum stuck inside, pulling apart in strands like a web. It strikes through me like a familiar smell or a song, and all of a sudden, I'm weak in the legs. How many times have I reached into my own backpack looking for an old receipt to stick a piece of gum in? It's a quick way to dispose of a piece of garbage when one isn't at hand. It ends up serving as a little message to self. When you find it later, you know exactly what it is by the feel of it in your hand, and you toss it out without ever having to unwrap it. I'd never even thought, of course, about the possibility of someone pulling a little piece of discarded paper rolled carefully around a chewed up piece of gum out of my bag. And I'm certain Holly didn't either. I step outside for a minute to gather myself. The forensic pathologist we interviewed, Dr. Patroquin, said Holly's injuries were consistent with a fall. I tried to secure an interview with the chief medical examiner of Nova Scotia, Dr. Matt Bowes, and the doctor who performed Holly's autopsy, Dr. Marnie Wood. But where I failed, Tom was successful. In other jurisdictions and countries, the title is one you're likely more familiar with, coroner. In America, these are often elected officials. Here, the role of medical examiner is appointed by government and responsible for the reporting, investigating, and recording of deaths. MEs work closely with cops, and Tom was familiar with the chief medical examiner's office from back when he was a homicide investigator with the force, and since as a private investigator. When he asked to meet with the ME's office to review Holly's files, it was a quick, easy yes. How many cases like this have you asked them to review before? I asked Tom. A dozen or so, he answered. Have you ever gotten any of them reopened? I asked. Yes, he said. And so Tom met with Dr. Marnie Wood, 
He wanted to review her files from Holly's autopsy and ask some preliminary questions. As soon as he was able, Tom met with Peter and I to share what he'd learned. The purpose was for me to have a general idea of the collective of all the injuries that Holly had. Right. And to actually see these injuries because the written word is an awful lot different. I'm trying to piece together what happened to Holly. Dr. Ward says that she would be open to any new information and would not have an issue with changing the manner of death if the facts substantiated such a change. So she was very open-minded on that end. This changes everything. If Dr. Wood can be convinced Holly's death wasn't a fatal accident, if we can provide evidence that disproves this theory, the medical examiner's office has the power to reclassify the manner of death and to compel the police to reopen the case. And a lot has changed since the 72-hour formal investigation into Holly Bartlett's death. There's a new police chief, new rank and file, new homicide detectives. But first, we have to find out if Tom left that meeting with Dr. Wood with any new information, something we couldn't have gotten from the documents we did have. Tom is sitting at the table in our office with a printed and stapled summary of his meeting with Dr. Wood, resting his hands flat on the table on either side of it. The suspense is palpable. Peter and I sit stiffly in anticipation. No one moves as we wait for Tom to start speaking. She brought up the photographs on her computer screen of the autopsy. Okay, of her procedure in yeah. the lab. These are images that would have been taken as Dr. Wood examined Holly's body, recording each detail with such precision. So the first thing I wanted to clear up was, did Holly have leg fractures? Mm -hmm. As it turns out, the radiologist did find two on her left leg and one on her right. So like compression fractures? No, no. You're looking at them, it's a crack in the bone. To put it in perspective, if somebody rolled their ankle, mm -hmm. serious enough that they would probably cast it. Okay. The legs, specifically around her knees, considerable bruisings and, and abrasions. Buttocks on the right side had a fairly substantial bruise. And on the left buttocks, there was two or three equally substantial bruises, but they were smaller. Anything on her arms sort of caught my attention because Holly was wearing this heavy winter coat. Mm -hmm. The outside of her upper right arm, large, large area of bruising. How did she get that bruise under her coat? That would take a much more substantial blow to have a bruise under that coat than it would be on a bare arm. This is one of the main questions we'd hoped to answer when we first sought expert help. The leg injuries, as Tom says, would have been bad enough to cast, but the bones weren't shattered. When I picture the size of the abutment, when we dangled our arms over the edge of it, looking down 20 feet to the ground below, it seems hard to imagine that a fall from that height would result only in fractures. And now this, an injury on Holly's arm, under the thickness of that winter pea coat. In Tom's words, it would have taken a more substantial blow, but the bone wasn't damaged. What could have caused an injury like that? Already, another more disturbing narrative of what might have happened to Holly that night was emerging. Regarding Holly's head, I do not recall seeing any abnormalities pertaining to the exterior of the skull. Personally, as an investigator, I find that interesting because mm -hmm. in cases where you have death caused by blunt force trauma to the head, that's the key location. You usually see some type of bruising, bleeding, hematoma, something, nothing. 
Overview of the brain. There was a subdural hemorrhage present at the base of the skull, so at the back of the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, oriented more towards the right side. So what you're saying is on the, the outside, cranial. there was nothing visible. No, except for this the, one little... Tom is pointing to his right temple. Except that spot. That one little spot. And then the rest of the damage was internal, like actually inside. Uh, yes. The brain, okay. Yep. Dr. Wood advises that uh, these types of trauma injuries to the brain are caused by falls or impact to the head area, not specific. Yeah. It could be being hit by something, it could be tripping and falling, it yeah. could be... This echoes what we learned from Dr. Patroquin about blunt force trauma. But her conclusion, like Dr. Woods, was non-specific. One of the things that jumped out at me first was the palms of Polly's hands. Palms are almost, I'd say, almost pristine, but when you look at the backs of her hands, mm -hmm. that's where you start seeing scrapes and picks and cuts. and. All of the wounds on the hand require a closer look. The face injuries, I think, are the ones that took me off guard the most. I didn't recognize Holly when I saw her mm -hmm. in, the, in the, the face shots from the morgue because of swelling yeah. and discoloration, bruising and cuts and contusions to her, her lips, both inside and outside. Mm -hmm. And You mean the... the Mouth injuries. <sighs> I'd asked Tom to ask Dr. Wood about the injury around Holly's mouth. Could it have resulted from medical intervention when doctors were trying to save her? For example, could intubation leave damage like that? What Tom found was chilling. It was a sub substantial blow to this area. Tom is raising his hand flat up to his face, covering his mouth and nose. But a fall, a hit or something, we don't know. I need to make sure I'm getting this right. It sounds like Tom is saying this was the location of impact. Damage to the mouth that could have come from the action of blunt force trauma, whether it was something that struck her or her that struck something. Correct. Okay. Peter shifts uncomfortably in his seat. I can only imagine how painful it is to receive this information, but it feels like we're getting closer to understanding what might have happened. With the face being the receiving location, if you're falling, you know, you picture like, putting your hands out. If you take an, a child or an 80-year-old person, and if they start to fall or if they jump, the hands always come out to the side. It's played, yeah. It's just it's the way we are wired. Mm. How do you get injuries on the back of your hands? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever put your hands up in front of your face to protect it? Mm. Like this? Yeah. For what? You know, fighting with someone. Mm, okay. Have you ever done it? Yeah, I could put your hands go up like this. Why did you do it? Protect your face. You, you, it's, it's almost like instinct is to go like this. Tom stretches his arms out in front of him, hands raised, the way you might picture a traffic cop gesturing stop. Then he raises his hands, covering his face. To me, it's a conscious thought to cover your face like that. Peter's eyes drift elsewhere. He shakes his head in disbelief. I'm trying to review everything we've just learned in my thoughts. The injuries to her legs and arms may indicate a fall, but a fall from 20 feet seems like a stretch. Wouldn't you expect bones to be cracked clean or damage to the spinal cord? Then there are the hand injuries. If Holly had climbed up the abutment on hands and knees, why weren't there scrapes on the palms of her hands? Tom says the practical answer to the question, how did the back of her hands get so torn up, is easy. She must have had her hands raised above her face to protect it. 
But to protect from what? And how, despite her efforts to shield herself, did she suffer such a significant strike to the mouth? It's hard to believe that the last person who saw Holly Bartlett alive was never formally interrogated. Paul Fraser picked Holly up in his taxi. Police contacted him while she was in intensive care, dying. But the taxi driver was never brought into the police station that day. Cops decided instead to visit him in his cab, where they talked for 25 minutes, a decision that was later sharply criticized by an outside bureaucratic review. Here's Brian. I believe it was their first trip with him where they rode in the back of his taxi cab. They interviewed him there. This is what he had told two police was it was a normal fare. He picked her up. She was helped in the vehicle by others, and he drove her home. She paid him, got out of the cab, and he drove off. And their first take on it was that Paul Fraser was the salt of the earth. Remember, Brian had already put together that there must have been a bus at the foot of Holly's driveway when she was allegedly dropped off. He knew from what police told him after viewing the bus security footage that Paul Fraser's taxi remained in the area after he said he'd dropped her off. The cab was parked outside the apartment building at Kencrest, facing North Ridge Road. Brian recalls hearing the right indicator was blinking, as if the driver were preparing to return in the direction of Holly's condo down the road. I tried to get the bus footage myself, even though it had been eight years and the police wouldn't even let Brian see it back then. In fact, I just happened to be right outside the Kencrest apartment building when a public relations officer from Halifax Transit returned my call. But the spokesperson, Natasha Romke, told me, if the police don't give it to you, there's no way you'll ever get to see it. I asked her if they keep footage like this on a drive, thinking they must have copies of video used in police investigations as a backup, if only to protect themselves. But her answer surprised me. She told me the opposite. As soon as security footage is handed over to police, she said within days, Halifax Transit deletes it from its system. Nevertheless, Brian's discovery that Paul Fraser's taxi didn't leave the area did change the investigators' thinking. They told Brian they believed he had returned to Convoy Towers after dropping Holly off. The police determined that he did come back, so they needed to interview him again to find out why he admitted that the first time. This is when Paul Fraser's story begins to change. He then says, well, I'm not proud of something I did that night. When she walked away from the cab, she walked the, the opposite direction to her apartment building. She tripped on the curb and fell. And so he said, I went down the road and almost immediately turned around and came back to check on her within two minutes, as we discovered later. The police then went to the theory, well, she tripped on the curb, must have fallen and hit her head and added to her impaired state and her disorientation. And now she's really in trouble. Police had said to me, I, I know you're going to want to talk to him, and we've already told him you'll probably be calling him. So I called Mr. Fraser. I met with him at his house. I knew right off the bat something was, was strange. He had just spoken to police about it, and they had just told him that I was going to be there to ask him questions about this. He played it almost um, that he didn't know. He couldn't remember. Like He said, oh, was that, did that happen back in May? He was very evasive. He had said that he didn't tell police that Holly was drunk. 
one night he took her home. However, the police had told me the cab driver knew that she was intoxicated. He said he didn't stop anywhere. He gave me the description of the street, the travel, how they got to, to Holly's apartment building. So I asked him at that point if he would accompany me over to the site so we could look at this in detail and he could show me exactly how it transpired. Paul Fraser agreed, and he and Brian revisited the site together. It's at this point the taxi driver's version of events becomes more troubling. He had told me that he had lied to police. We saw her get into the cab, but he focused on the fact that he had never looked at her. He said she slid right over behind him. They drove all the way home. There was no conversation whatsoever. She never spoke to him. He said she was just busy. She was rummaging in her her purse the whole time. And I said, what do you suppose she was looking for? And he said uh, she might have been looking for her cane. And I looked at him, paused for a moment, and he said, oh, wait, I, I, I couldn't have known that. I didn't know she was blind. Someone must have planted that in my mind. He had dropped her off, that she had tripped. He had left, returned. He said she wasn't anywhere to be seen. And I said, where do you suppose she got to so quick if she was disoriented? He said, I, I don't know, maybe she hid herself. And I said, why would she hide herself? He said, I have no idea. What Brian did next speaks to his experience in his career as an investigator. They left the abutment. He invited Paul Fraser to join him in his car. I'd said, show me exactly where you turned. He accompanied me, sat in the passenger seat. We drove up to where it was. We went down to where he turned around. And as I turned into the area that he said he turned, it was a roadway that led behind the apartment building. As I turned into this parking area, he said, I turned right here. But Brian didn't stop driving. He kept going down into the entry of the parking lot behind the apartment building at Kencrest. He put both feet on the floor very hard and both hands on the dash and said, I've never been down in here. I don't know where this goes. It was serious concern in his voice. After that, Brian turned the car around, left the parking lot, and convinced Paul Fraser to join him on a park bench overlooking the fenced, locked abutment where Holly was found only months earlier. This was when Paul Fraser would change his story again. We sat there for a few minutes and I told him that I believed the theory that the police had was totally inaccurate and that he knew a lot more than he was letting on. And I said, I could tell something was weighing heavy on his chest. He sat there quiet for a moment and then he said, uh, there is something. I said, uh, and what is that? And I let him talk. He said, I ripped her off. I stole from her that night. And I said, you stole from Holly? And he said, yes. So I said, now you took a normal fare home. Now you see a girl trip and fall, following the story you told police. Then you now have stolen from her. And I said, that's interesting. I said, what else happened? Paul Fraser told Brian that when Holly paid him, she paid in cash, and he says she overpaid substantially. He said Holly gave him three $20 bills and three $5 bills, returning only $1.50 in change. He said she gave him $75 for a cab ride, about $15, and he gave her a buck fifty change. This was another explanation for why he'd returned to convoy that night. Not because he'd seen her trip and fall, as he justified in the second version he told police, but because he had stolen cash from Holly that night. This time, he told Brian he drove back because he felt guilty. 
To assuage his guilt the next day, he donated $40 to a charity, the Children's Hearing Disability Fund, as it's listed in Brian's notes from the time. Not only did Holly not experience hearing loss, but there is no listed charity under that name. And as Paul Fraser insisted to Brian and police, he didn't know Holly was blind. He then told Brian he donated another $20 to a separate charity, something involving disability, though he couldn't recall the name. Barring Paul Fraser's changing versions of what happened that night, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Even though we know Holly preferred paying with a card, she had her own system of handling and folding cash so she'd know exactly how much she had. And according to accounts from friends who were with her that night, she didn't have more than a $5 bill on her. But still, let's say for argument's sake, Paul Fraser was telling the truth in his third version of events, that he did rob Holly that night. If he didn't know she was blind, as he insisted to both Brian and police, why would he donate cash to organizations supporting people with disabilities? After Paul Fraser told Brian he'd stolen from Holly, Brian asked him, point blank, what do you think happened that night? How did she end up where she was found? Here is Paul Fraser's answer recorded in Brian's notes. He said he didn't know, but didn't think she went there willingly. I'm struck by that word, willingly. The word he chose when invited to speculate what might have happened to Holly that night, that she wouldn't have gone willingly. It's startling because it's just what Holly's sister Kim said. Mark my words, mark my words. She did not get there because she wanted to be there. I'm telling you, that did not happen because she chose to go there. I promise to you. I will to my dying breath. No, she didn't do that. Somebody put her there. When Brian met with Paul Fraser, he spent more time with him than the police did, even the combined length of both conversations. But there was one other person I knew who had spent a significant amount of time with Paul Fraser. I wanted to meet with him to hear his impression. Hey, Maggie, how you doing? I'm meeting with Rob Gordon, a longtime reporter for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, who produced a national story about Holly Bartlett's death for an investigative TV series called The Fifth Estate. So how did you find him? Like I found out his address and just went to his house and knocked on the door. Just showed up and... Yeah, he was uh, just fine. Come on in, let's uh, talk. Right away? Right away. His wife was home as well. This wasn't just a pop-in. Because of the nature of television, this kind of interview takes a lot of setting up. Lights, mics, cameras. Even if the interview itself takes less than an hour, it can end up taking hours. And in Rob's case, it was five times longer than the police had spent with the taxi driver. What was he like? The guy had a lot of credibility, willing to answer any question, didn't use any weasel words, very precise in what he had to say. And what did he say? He said that he, you know, picked her up, drove her to the street that she lived on, and she got out. He was a little concerned that she was drunk. He waited around for a couple of minutes. He left before she went in the house. And then he said something kind of didn't feel right with him, so he drove up the street again to see where she was, and she wasn't there, so he just went about the rest of his shift as a cab driver. It sounds like you were kind of given the impression that he was a solid guy and, and not involved. But I mean, he was involved, obviously. He, he 
took her to where she was going. And not long after that, she ended up at the bottom of that bridge abutment. I certainly didn't get the impression he was involved uh, any more than that. You know, you ask the same question later and sure. you get exactly the same answer and it hasn't changed and seemed to be quite an open book, you know. What about that whole thing about the stealing money, though? He denies that. Denies that he said that? He felt pressured by uh, the investigator. That admission was more the investigator's words rather than his. But then he did bring it to police, and then that led to the whole polygraph. When Brian told investigating officers that Paul Fraser admitted to stealing from Holly, they picked up the thread again, even though the case was formally closed. Paul Fraser was brought in for a polygraph, the results of which were not included in the police documents we received. The polygrapher would go on to tell Brian at the time he thought Paul Fraser was lying through his teeth, despite the fact he passed the test. Since 2010, polygraph science has been largely discredited. Some police across Canada continue to use polygraphs in investigations, but the results are not admissible in court. Despite everything, the fact Paul Fraser had changed his story so many times, despite the fact the polygrapher himself doubted the results of the test, Halifax Regional Police stuck to their theory. But they said that they were satisfied that basically that didn't change their theory of what happened. Yeah. And that he didn't play a role beyond dropping her off. Yeah. Like, how would you categorize regret, either present or absent, in his... Regret was uh, from him, and he said it several times, uh, was that he didn't spend more time, that, that he didn't take her right to the door, you know, get out of the cab and take her to the door, and that when he had that feeling something's not right here, that he should have spent more time uh, uh, in that, actually trying to lo locate her. He couldn't locate her, didn't see her again, so he went, oh, I guess, you know, she's all right. But uh, that he perhaps, he felt, should have spent more time doing that. Hmm. Is there anything else that leapt out at you that you think about? I mean, it's been a number of years now, but... Well, just how impossible the whole thing is. Yeah. I, I, you know, it was an accident. She did all this by herself somehow. All these things happened with the purse scattered all over the place, the cane on the wrong side of the fence, walking through an area that's difficult for anybody to get through, up that uh, incline on the abutment, and then, and then fell off. Well, I don't know. So I, I hope you get farther than we did. Me too. <laughs> because the family needs it. And I think, you know, in her memory, some, some, something needs to happen here. Rob Gordon says Paul Fraser had a lot of credibility. I wasn't so sure. It was time to find the one person who might hold answers. I started looking around to see if I could find anything else on Paul Fraser. He'd since left the cab company he worked with, one of two main taxi operators in town, and had registered as an independent cab driver under the name Otono Taxi, Otono meaning autumn in Spanish. Fraser doesn't have a criminal record, and he seemed to be living a quiet life in West End Halifax. To my surprise, I did find a story he appeared in on a local news network. The story about an exercise facility designed specifically for patients with dementia aired on Global News in Halifax in March of 2016. One of the couples featured are Paul Fraser and his wife. It's Paul's wife who is living with dementia, a subject that would come up when I would eventually speak to him. Paul Fraser's number is publicly listed. One afternoon, I called him. I took a deep breath and dialed. Okay, here we go. 
Hi, is this Paul? Yeah. Mr. Fraser has declined to take part in this project. I can't play the phone call, but I can tell you what he said. I asked Paul if he remembered the night he drove Holly home, and if I could ask him some questions. He agreed. I never expected he'd stay on the phone for more than 20 minutes. I began by asking him to tell me what he remembered. He said he picked Holly up at Dalhousie, that she was guided out to the car by a friend. She sat in the back of the taxi and didn't say a word. He said he couldn't remember the name of her street, North something, he'd said. He pulled up to Convoy Towers. He says Holly got out on the wrong side of the car. Instead of going toward her condo entrance, he says she was walking away from the front door in the wrong direction. He says, as he was driving away, she tripped on the curb. Here's an exact quote from the transcript of what he said next. That's the last time I saw her, obviously. I did come back, see if she was still there, but she was, she wasn't. Then Paul tells me he's having memory problems that he has for years. I ask him to go back to seeing Holly trip. She tripped on the, the curb, and fell onto uh, the grass, I presume, he said. It wasn't, she didn't fall on the pavement. He says he kept driving, but then three or four blocks later decided to come back. I asked him why. I'm going to read the transcript for this part of the conversation. Maggie, why did you decide to do that? Paul, I felt that she might have hurt herself, so I just wanted to check her, but I was relieved that she had gone. There was a bus, a transit bus there the whole, the whole time. Maggie, why do you say that? Paul, pardon? There was a driver with the transit bus there, so if she was in really bad shape, she could have shouted and he would have, he was parked there. It's a parking spot for a transit bus. Maggie, if she was in trouble, you say, the bus driver. Paul, like if she was in trouble, she could have hollered out for help. But I went back anyway, and she was gone. I asked Paul to meet with me in person for an interview. He said, I think I'm in the first stages of dementia. I don't think I should. I don't want to get anybody in trouble, particularly myself. I asked Paul about the story he told Brian and later police that he'd stolen money from Holly, but he said he couldn't remember. What is it you don't remember, I asked him. This business about the money being stolen, he replied. I challenged him on this point. You remember Holly being guided out to the taxi. You remember dropping her off. You remember going back to check on her. He said he only remembered some details because he'd later read them in the newspaper. I asked him what he thought happened to Holly that night. Here's what he told me. Paul, uh, she... She obviously got up and moved on, and that's all I can say. I know where she was found, and I probably would have recognized her if she was walking on the street corner, opposite the way I was coming back, just to check on her. Maggie, you would have noticed if she was walking in the wrong direction down the street? Paul, yes, I thought she was a child. She was so small. I, I, uh, I didn't know she was blind, of course. I... I thought she was a child when I first saw her, uh, thought she was very young. Uh, just because she's in the uh, place that serves alcohol, I didn't think it necessarily meant that she couldn't go in. 
I never saw her face at any point. Maggie, why do you mention that? Paul, people, or particularly my brothers, have said, how come you didn't know she was blind? I didn't know. Maggie, you didn't see a cane? Paul, excuse me? Maggie, you didn't see Holly's cane? Paul, she didn't have one. Maggie, Holly did have her cane with her that night. It was found later near where she was found below the bridge. Paul, is it a collapsible cane that she could put in her purse or something? Maggie, yes. Paul, okay, that must be where it was. She didn't, uh, she might be alive today if she had carried her cane outside. I push back. You were the last person to be with her, I remind him. He said, uh, to, as far as I know, and when she walked towards the old folks' place, she didn't walk with a cane. She was not snapping her cane on the pavement walking along. She had none. That's a very specific memory to raise up, I say. Then Paul Fraser said something I haven't stopped thinking about since I first heard it. He said, I have the vision of her falling. A vision of her falling, I repeat. Yes, he said, it's quite clear. I ask Paul if he thought Holly was a child, why he would have left her laying on the grass. He said he wasn't a good Samaritan. I asked him if he thinks of that night often. He answered immediately, no, I never think of it. I asked Paul some more questions about how the police contacted him, about the Ville de Quebec review and the media coverage. He said the police did a thorough examination. I thanked him for speaking with me. We said goodbye and hung up. And just like that, Paul Fraser had changed his story once again. I spent the following weeks replaying the phone call in my mind. I had trouble sleeping. Three phrases in particular pursued me with relentless persistence. She could have hollered out for help. She might be alive today if she had carried her cane outside. I have the vision of her falling. On the next episode... Holly was very feisty and you wouldn't be able to pull a fast one on her. How can there be six different stories to how that went down? You think he chose this location to wait and watch? Something happened and he's waiting to see what happens next. I'm Maggie Rahr and this is What Happened to Holly Bartlett. This podcast is produced by Ocean Entertainment. Our executive producer is Johanna Elliott. Our supervising producer is Jennifer Camo. What Happened to Holly Bartlett is edited by Fabian Melanson and written and hosted by me, Maggie Rahr. Podcast sound design and mix by Village Sound. For accessible media, regional content specialist is Ryan Delahanty. And Andrew Morris is development and production executive. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a review and a rating. And don't forget to subscribe.